Welcome to Meet the Neighbor. I'm Laura Tamayo. Thank you for joining the conversation today. All right, so I want to start with a little mental exercise. Sure. If there were a museum curating your life, mm. what would I find there? All kinds of trinkets and curiosities. All the way from perhaps memories, souvenirs from back in London, other places in the world I've been to, but the shelves hopefully will be lined with things that I've been interested in, but also a lot of empty space that would hold nothing because that to me is what curiosity is about. And about the, tell me a little bit about the things that you've been interested in. So I can tell you when I was two years old, my first time on an airplane, and I've loved airplanes ever since, even to the point where I eventually went to flight school and flew airplanes. Wow. Um, I still love airplanes. The mm-hmm. smell of aviation gas to me is one of the best smells in the world. So that's one. Um, another one is books. I would often go hide in the library for hours and then. In fact, I would skip school to go to the library to go just go read books. And I even told today my, my largest monthly expense is books. Amazon is my biggest vice. I never hesitate buying a book and it could be audio, it could be physical, it doesn't matter if it's in the book, but books are my biggest vice. So those would be a couple of airplanes. When it comes to anything else, it's just I'm just curious as to how things work. I mean, it could be something as little as helping my daughters pick a little lock on a suitcase to, you know, um, how does a nuclear reactor work? Just, just, it, it's just endless. I don't, I don't have a boundary to my curiosity. But what kind of rooms would your museum be divided into? There would be one quiet room where you or I or anyone could just go sit and think. And everything else would kind of look like my desk, just things everywhere. So I probably wouldn't have any kind of chrono- chronological order. It, things would be everywhere. I would know where they were. Things would be everywhere. I don't have a particular order for things, but I know where things are. Okay, so, so organized chaos. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so to give you an example of what that looks like, we moved recently and uh, my wife went to some documentation from the old house. And so I went into the attic, into a, we were refinancing one of our properties. I went into the attic, into one box, pulled out the file from 15 years ago to pull out a survey for a property that we had. And she said, how did you know where that was? I just know where it is, you know, in, in this entire mess of things. So that's kind of how my mind operates. Now you've got your own kind of visual record. Yep, exactly. So tell me about your childhood. Born and raised, London, Southeast London. Childhood from zero to 17, lived in London, then moved to Dallas. Memories can be deceiving. Home life was okay. We were lower middle class, very blue collar. Both parents worked. Mom worked from home quite a bit to help you know, spend time with us. But as we grew older, we became latchkey kids. I have a younger brother. Went to school in London, did my, what they would call infant primary and secondary schooling in London, and then moved to America. Can't say that I enjoyed school, would never want to be a kid again. <laughs> Not in that environment. Just, you know, some people just had this pristine childhood. And for me, um, just because I guess some of the socioeconomics and some of the racial pressure that we had growing up, I can't say that I would want to experience that again. So it wasn't a bad childhood. We got to travel quite a bit. My parents, um, have, we have family in East Africa. We have family in, in America. So we did, we did travel quite a bit, which was, which was nice. It was a nice reprieve during the summer. We'd have a six-week holiday and we'd travel. So that was nice. But I, I can't say that I really enjoyed being a kid or even enjoyed going to school or any, any of that whole environment back then. 
looking back on your childhood, is there a significant memory you can share that you feel really shaped you? Being an Indian person in a white person world, absolutely. Um, I have a couple that really stick out. One was, I, we were part of these uh, the Boy Scout, Cub Scout troops, and we would do this thing called, um, it's called Baba Job, and it translates into a bob back in the day was essentially tuppence, two pennies. And I remember we would have to knock on people's doors and ask them, look, we would do whatever work you want us to do for you, clean a yard or do whatever it looks like. And they would pay you whatever they thought would be worth. And I literally remember knocking on an old white lady's door. And she opened the door and she said, I don't want no packy touching my garden, or my yard or something. And, and, you know, it must have been, I don't know, eight, nine years old. And so a, a packy is a derogatory term for someone that comes from Pakistan. And we were Indian, but just that whole, like, you know what? Okay, this is kind of strange. And so that first experience of realizing that you're of color and then, you know, being in school with predominantly white people, there was an overarching shadow during my entire childhood of being a sub-minority. When I say a sub-minority, what I mean is that primarily they were Caucasian or white, secondary was you could call them West Indians or, or black people, and then the minority of the minorities were the Indians. And so that was a shadow that I carried with me for a long time growing up. That was one of those shaping moments when realizing that this is how the outside world viewed you. So tell me a little more about West Indian. I don't think I've heard that So, so, so think uh, Jamaican and okay. uh, Barbados, Trinidad, Tobago, from, mm -hmm. from, from the West Indies. There was a huge migration of West Indians to England, I think, back in the 60s. Right. And so they, you kind of felt like they had more social value. So, so there was definitely a hierarchy just because sheer numbers. Right. And so there were the, the white strata and the West Indians or black people. And then there was the Indians who were the minority of minorities. Wow. Yeah. I don't think I knew that. That's interesting. It feels kind of reversed. I feel like in this country, it's exactly backwards. I feel like black people tend to be pushed to the bottom of that hierarchy often. So I can understand what you're saying. I still think if you look at it from a sheer numbers perspective, mm -hmm. it would pretty, probably play out very similar. What do you mean numbers? Numbers, like the number of people, perhaps if we look at a census, you'd say there might be like 38% white people, 30% black people, and then what, 30% all the others. So think Hispanic, Indian, et cetera, et cetera. So from a sheer number perspective, I still feel like the population would play out very similar right now from a sheer numbers perspective, not from a hierarchy standpoint. Yeah, I guess that what I was wondering was in terms of uh, social, like, value. socioeconomic. Well, social value, like the gotcha. aspect. Right. So do you feel that the group that you suddenly realized you were a part of was the least valued? Back then, all my family social circle were always lower middle class. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, that's all I got to see. I jokingly talk about I'm a, I'm a feminist to some extent. I have three young daughters and you know I, I know I'm raising th three girls of color, but I like it when the opportunity presents itself where they can see someone who looks like them in a position of power. If you go back to my childhood, I can tell you that I didn't see anyone that I would say looked like me in a position of power. Now, being a kid, you know, our, our doctor was an Indian person, but in a socialist government, the doctors don't have the same amount of income or social status as they do in the U.S. And so, you know, he, he may have been a doctor, but he wasn't, you know, wealthy or he didn't have, you know, status per se in the community or within our society. So. There wasn't anyone that looked like me that I could aspire to be like. Mm. And I still, I, I think even till today, I struggle with that here sometimes too. Not my, for myself, because 
different times, but for my daughters. Yeah. So. Yeah, you see that for them. Right. So tell me about the sounds of your childhood. Sounds. So we walk to school a lot. So in London, it, it's rain, obviously, and cloudy and soggy and damp, and that damps the sound, but you can feel your shoes squishing all the time. And I think I, any of us that have walked you know, in the city, I, I, we I, agree that damps the sound. <laughs> I'll tell you, even till today, I don't ever like having wet socks. These shoes, I'll tell you right now, these shoes I bought specifically, if you, they have a neoprene insole and they're waterproof. I buy waterproof shoes because I detest having damp socks. Because mm -hmm. in London, we'd walk to school in the morning, your socks are damp. Your socks would be semi-damp all day long. And you walk back home again, that, your shoes didn't have time to dry out. It was just it, like just being soggy all the time. And so that squishy sound of just being wet all the time, just even till today, I'm like, mm, not so much. We traveled by public transport a lot, so trains, to me, trains are very hypnotic. There's a rhythm that trains have. My dad worked for British Rail, and so there's a rhythm. You can almost, you know, fall asleep to it. Um, so trains were a big part of our life, buses. Another sound that even till today is, you know, in the house, we always have Indian music playing. So even now till today, it's almost like a comfort sound or a comfort music. You, I find myself on the weekend having Indian music playing in my house. It's very comforting to me, very soothing. I'll tell you another one that's kind of a strange one, the sewing machine. So my mother worked from home. She was seamstress. And to me, even till today, I feel like I can fall asleep to a sewing machine. It resonates with a different part of me that I, I find it just comfortable to hear a sewing machine. It, it's a strange one, but, and even now she has machines in her house where she lives here in Dallas, because it's a hobby and she does it still. But when I hear the sound of that sewing machine, it's, it's a very comforting sound for me. It's, it's almost like a lullaby because we fall asleep to that sound so many times. Yeah, it's the sound of mom's home. Mm -hmm. I have that same association with um, heels on the floor. When mm. I hear clicking heels, mm. I, I recognize my mom's gait. And so I hear those clicking heels because there was a short period of time where we actually had to go to daycare. My mom mm. um, went back to work and she separated. And I remember in the room with the other children waiting, mm -hmm. you know, playing games, doing whatever. We finished our homework, waiting for pickup. And the minute I, I heard her gate, I could hear it down the hall long before I could see her. Mm. I mean, I just remember that sound. I would grab my things, and before she was at the door, I was there, mm. ready. <laughs> but yeah, that sound. Yep. Mm, certain sounds that you associate with mom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, and you said Indian music. Um, tell me about the Indian connection. What part of India is your heritage from? So we're Gujaratis, um, which is northwest India kind of a mixture because my mom is Muslim and my dad's Christian, but we're both, we're still Indian. And so my mom's family came from another part of India, but we all speak Gujarati at home. The music we listen to is Hindi music because Hindi is the predominant language in India. We spoke Gujarati at home. We'd watch Indian movies, Indian music. And still when prior to getting married, one of the, I just whole checklist of things, things that were non-negotiable to a certain extent. And one of the things was that I wanted the, my wife to be able to, at least understand Hindi, if not be able to speak it too, just because I feel like that part of my life, someone would have to understand how important like Indian music is to me to understand me. And so fortunately for me, I made the right decision. She speaks Hindi, she loves Indian music. We both listen to Indian music all the time. My kids are tired of it most of the time. <laughs> but that part of me, it's so deep and it was again one of those non-negotiables. Even though I speak Gujarati, I didn't need to be married to someone that speaks Gujarati, but someone that we have the common denominator of, of Hindi, at least. And tell me, why is it that it's so important to you? It speaks to a different part of my brain. It speaks to a different part of like how I think. 
often when I talk to myself, I talk to myself in Gujarati, or I talk to myself in Hindi, or you know, I talk to myself in English, or depending on what I'm thinking about, depending on what I want to say. There's been times where I've tried to explain myself in English, and I find that there are certain words are missing, and these, there are words for that in Hindi, and I, I, I can't quite find them in English occasionally. Even when it comes to like emotional feelings, like if I were to say something in Hindi regarding a person, almost like in Spanish, you would know the hierarchy of the person without even me saying, you know, where they sit in the family or where mm -hmm. they sit, you know, from a respect perspective. The one that I use quite often is, you know, my mother's always kind of harped on this one is that um, in English, the word you, I could be talking to my dog, I could be talking to my mother, I could be talking to my daughter. It doesn't matter. The you is all encompassing. It's not a good or a bad thing. But in our language, similar to Spanish, we were to say, you know, in our language, address my mother, it would be a different kind of you than addressing my daughter. You could tell where the hierarchy sits automatically. And so often when I find myself thinking about different things, I'll talk to myself in Hindi or the idea of the words come to me in Hindi and I'll stop for a moment and try to translate it to English. Yeah, kind so. of like once upon a time we had you and thou. Right. And now the use of thou is very, very limited when right. everybody says you. Right. But once upon a time, English also had it. Yep. Yeah. But yeah, no, I know what you mean. And as far as like finding the right word, sometimes even when there is a word, the field of meaning isn't the same. There's overlap. The weight but of the word is like not there. But there are like parts of the meaning mm -hmm. that are not carried over. Right. And so if you need the full weight of the word, mm -hmm. it feels insufficient sometimes it does. It does. when you're trying to put it in English. I agree. You know, it's almost like to explain that feeling. Mm -hmm. You really, it's, it's not a, a word you're looking for. It's a five-minute explanation. Mm -hmm. And, and, <laughs> so, yeah. and to that point, so a lot of Indian music, especially older Indian music, is very melancholy. Think of it like country music here. Um, and so it, it, it pulls on different parts of the heart. You know, it takes you to that roller coaster, if you will. Yes, there's popular music and, you know, there's, there's, there's that, but a lot of music that we listen to really speaks to different parts of the soul. Yeah, I agree. Is there a soundtrack to your life in particular? No, I, I, I can't say there's a particular soundtrack that I could put my finger on and say it, it depends on my mood. Depends on your mood. Yes. But mostly Indian music, mostly Hindi. So almost always Indian music. If I were to pick a second genre of music, it would be reggae music. I grew up with West Indians, so all my friends were Rastafarians. And so I grew up with reggae music to the point where my dad would get tired of hearing reggae, reggae music in the house. So just recently, we went to a concert. We went to Dave Matthews this past week. My wife had bought tickets because a group of friends were going. And I don't know who Dave Matthews is. I don't know a single song he sang, but I just went because it's the group. But I told my wife, that if Ziggy Marley comes to town, like I'm in, like like even mm -hmm. till, till today, if I get the odd opportunity of just the odd itch, I'll put some reggae music on. So my girls know Bob Marley and from, from that perspective. But so reggae music would be my second genre of music. So Indian music, reggae music, and then probably instrumental or something. But So you say a lot of your friends were West Indian. Mm. Um, is that what your neighborhood looked like? Was it mostly? My neighborhood was a mix of white people, a lot of Turkish and Greeks. Mm -hmm. uh, we had some really good friends of ours that were Cypriots also, so from Cyprus. So that was great. The food is phenomenal. Those were our closest friends. In full transparency, I can't tell you that I had a white person as a friend, like a close friend, till I came to America. Okay. There was just no trust there. It was the you know the innocent generalization of a minority that if one or some are like that, they're all going to be like that. And because we were quote unquote in physical harm too growing up, you know from skinheads, there was no trust at all. Like. I could trust the West Indian friend, the Jamaican friend, or the Cypriot because they too were people of color. So they were experiencing some of what we were experiencing. 
from a minority standpoint. But I could never convey that to, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about, you know, the white heterosexual male, you know, in America. And them walking into a building or into a room or into a situation, they don't understand what it feels like to walk in as a minority. Like all the different conversations going through your head as you walk into that room. And because I experienced so much of that as a child, being in a predominantly white school, being in a predominantly, obviously, white community, just that constant looking, looking over your shoulder of who's going to call you a name or who might want to try to attack you or whatever it is, just because you're you, that definite piece that I, I grew up with. So. And could it also be that the configuration of your city makes a big difference, right? It's huge. And like in the past, we've talked a little bit, you and I have had a chance to comment on the fact that you know, in certain cities like the one we're in now here in Dallas, Texas, mm -hmm. we spend a lot of time in our cars and there's a certain protection, if you will. Absolutely. They're called garage door communities, right? I go home, I pull into my garage, I go into my house, no one knows who we are. Now, I reach out to my neighbors. I like knowing my neighbors. But a lot of times, and to your point, we're very spread out here. Whereas London, you know, it's very, very, think of New York, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's just like that. Everyone's on top of each other. And there are certain segments of London that, you know, you go into, you don't go into. And, you know, we were in Southeast London, which was, again, very blue collar, if, if not, you know, even lower than that to some extent. So the people you're interacting with are from that some, same socioeconomic. Now, I don't know, and I don't know how it works here. I, I read a good book recently called The Hillbilly Elegy. I don't know if you're familiar with it. No. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good book. J.D. Vance, Hillbilly Elegy. I read it last year. Mm -hmm. It talks about the Virginias and people, you know, in the lower income areas out there. And it sounded a lot like some of the areas we lived in London or, you know, we were in and around. It was just people we interacted with. And so I didn't have the opportunity to interact with what I would perhaps call the educated class to that extent. So what I mean by that is that no one in my immediate family had college education. I don't know still today if it would have been different if we did interact with more educated people. Some of the political situations that we're facing today in America as a whole, I think are targeted people that are perhaps less educated. And so they have they don't have a broader scope of views. And so I didn't have the opportunity to interact with those kind of people in school or in my community back in London. I couldn't even tell you honestly if I knew that my teacher had a college education. I, I, I don't know. They may or may not have. I don't know what it took to be a teacher in the 80s or 70s back in London. But I don't know if I had to interact with people that were higher up in the or more educated, if it would have been different. Mm -hmm. but that was just the people we had. The but there's a, yeah, there's other people. And I'm wondering also, because it sounds like it was very diverse from a lot of places, but I'm wondering, were there a lot of people also that looked very fair skin, very white. If you look at Cypriots and Greeks. I'm thinking of the Cypriots. Right. <laughs> they look like how you look. They're lighter skin. They're, they're dark haired. You, you can't, you really can't tell until you talk to them where they're from. Right. So you did have like a visual variety, but it was still Absolutely. within a neighborhood that had mostly people. Yeah, if you think of some of the Germany that comes class. to America and is walking, if, if yeah. me and a German are walking down the street today, one of us looks more like a foreigner than the other one. Right. So. Yeah. So now we've talked. You already mentioned food, so let's go there. Tell me about the smells, the color. It was memory. Indian food all the time, mm -hmm. and I still prefer Indian food all the time. It's just it's comfort food. It's it's what you know. My mom, whether it's for economic reasons or just because of taste, or she cooked at home all the time, and so that's what I grew up on. I still prefer that till today. You know, my girls have to go out. My wife has to go out. I'm like, I'm good staying at home, and just having simple Indian food. Now the flip side of that is that if I do choose to go out, or we get the opportunity to go out, I like to go to a Mediterranean restaurant because our close friends back home were Cypriots and Greeks, and so we grew up with a lot of that. And so I really enjoyed that food from that part of the world. But it's Indian food, and there's a certain comfort to, like, I, I love to cook. I find cooking very meditative, very relaxing. 
I also find that you have the opportunity to convey love in food. It might sound a little um, out there, but you know, I, I like to speak into the food when I'm actually cooking it because when I'm cooking, it's very rarely just for me. It's also for my girls, my wife. And so I feel like if I can put a certain emotion or intention into the food and appreciation also, it conveys that to my girls. Yeah. I, think, I think you're very right about that. I think um, when we're preparing food, even if it's in the tiniest of ways, Mm-hmm. The intention and the mood and the feeling you have while you're doing it does impact what you've done. And so it really does taste different. Like we tease a lot and, you know, when, when the food comes out too spicy, we say, whoa, the cook was mad today. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we have little jokes like that gotcha. to speak to that or having certain people do certain parts of it. Like, oh, so-and-so is going to be coming over for dinner. Oh, I'm going to have her come early because she's got better seasoning. Mm. But when we talk about seasoning, we say yes. the seasoning in hands. Right. We, we talk right. about it too. Right. And, it, and it's, it's to do a lot with what you bring as an individual Absolutely. to what you're preparing and who you're preparing it for. Mm-hmm. So to me, from that perspective, we're very fortunate in the fact that we never have to cook. I mean, we can get food from wherever we want today, right? But I think the act of cooking when you don't have to, there's a totally different feeling to doing that. I'm not obligated to cook. I want to cook for my girls. I want to cook for my family. And we're fortunate in that my parents and my in-laws live about 10 or 15 minutes from our house. So almost every week, inevitably, my mother will bring something over that my girls like to eat or my, my mother-in-law will bring food over for us. There's a lot of love being conveyed in food. Like, so neither one of them have to do this, but they choose to do it. And they, you know, they bring it to the house. So there's a lot of affection and, and feelings that go into that. And, and I appreciate it too, because obviously, primarily for health reasons, my girls, my family gets home-cooked food. We know exactly what's going in it, preservatives, et cetera, et cetera. And because I have girls, I'm very, um, I try to be very aware of like antibiotics, GMOs, et cetera, et cetera. This is all home-cooked Indian food. And even the opportunity where my wife and I have the opportunity to cook at home, again, we don't have to. So it's nice when we do. So yeah. I think it's different when you have the obligation when you feel like you have to. You may feel a little bit like contentious about it or just feel like, you know what, I don't want to do this, but I have to because my family expects it. So. Yeah, I think in general, anytime we have to do anything, <laughs> yeah. we struggle with it right. a little bit, right? Yep. But when you do it by you know, the choice. When you're talking about the sharing, you know that when someone made something and brings it over mm-hmm. to your home, they actually they took the time mm-hmm. and they were thinking of you saying, oh, mm-hmm. I know Raj is going to love this. I'm going right. to make this. So it's not just that they brought you food and that you know what's in it and that yep. that's good food and that you know that their intention is a love intention. They spent all that time thinking about mm-hmm. you when they were thinking about, Absolutely. I'm going to make this and during the time that they made it. And so you kind of feel like, wow, someone is handing me over all of this time that they've been loving mm-hmm. me when we weren't even in the same room. Exactly right. Yeah. So yeah. it's a beautiful feeling to I think receive food made for you by mm-hmm. somebody. I agree. Yeah. So how do you think other people saw you as a child and back in London? Other is a lot of people, right? Other could be my schoolmates. It could be yeah, teachers. Yeah, just in general, the people that were part parents, of that you be... actually interacted with, your actual yeah, so, um, circle. So I got to experience the brunt of being a packy kid in London. That's without doubt. Um, I think my West Indian friends were more accepting because I was a person of color and there were people of color. And so we, we really bonded on that fact that we were both of color. So it was, it was a lot of like us against them mentality. Um, you know, I, I had the good fortune of being the smart kid in school. And so I did get, what I realized at, I guess, a young age is that if a person you're with 
doesn't have to work as hard as what they're doing because of you, then they make life easier for you. And what I mean by that is that I made life very easy for my teachers because I was good at what I did. And so they didn't have to spend as much time with me. And it went as far as up to the headmaster. I tell my kids all the time that my headmaster would come to my classroom and he would take us out, take me out. We would go on road trips together to go pick up supplies for school and do things like that because I wasn't a pain. Like I wasn't a bad kid. I was a good kid that made good grades. I mean, I was top of my class for years and years on end. I had no problem with school at all. And so I think that helps you, but it also hinders you too because you're a minority and you're a smart kid in school. And so some kids don't like that. You know, you get to be, you're the goody two-shoe, the one that's picking out, teacher's pet, whatever the phrases are or were. And so there was some of the animosity, absolutely. But I know that I, I use that to my advantage, whether, you know, you wield it or manipulate it to be around the teachers or be around the administration in the school because school wasn't ever an issue. So from that perspective, and then the people, some of my close friends, I would obviously help with their work. So I wouldn't like, because we didn't get much homework back then, which is I could help them with their schoolwork. Not a big deal for me. It wasn't an additional chore for me to help someone with their schoolwork. We kind of joke about it today, like school should be more collaborative anyway, because the real world is very collaborative. Yeah, I agree. You know, so you're taking your test over there, and I'm taking my test over here. It's almost like we're against each other, but we're not really, because the minute we leave here, we have to go work together. We have to solve it together. And so I was always about collaborating with people and helping them with their schoolwork. I thought it's not a big deal. Why, why, if I know the answer, why wouldn't I share it? And I kind of feel the same way about life today. If I can help somebody, why, why don't I? What am I afraid of? And I think that's rooted in scarcity and abundance mentality. And I think I felt that way. And a similar vein that's running through this country today is that I did feel that some people looked at me like this foreigners here in our country taking what we have. And so, you know, some of what's going on in America today about, you know, go back to your home. There was a lot of go back to your home, even though I was born in London, but people don't know that obviously just by skin color, right? And so there was some of that go back to home. So that's, I, I think a lot of people viewed me as that foreigner, even though I'm born in Greenwich Hospital. Yeah, of course. And the relationship between England and India goes very far back. So there are people well, that look just like you that have been there for many generations. That's the running joke, right? Is that when the British left India in 47, the Indians said, oh, wait, wait, we're coming with you. <laughs> because we all had, well, they had British passports. Uh -huh. So the reason we ended up in England is that the British had, quote unquote, colonized East Africa and certain parts of Africa. So my parents had British passports. The reason they left East Africa to end up in London is because they had a British passport, because the British had been there. In fact, I just found my grandfather's passport. He was a subject of the British protectorate of, of Tanzania, like back in the day. And so, you know, they had British passports because the British had come there and colonized. They just thought when they left that no one would follow them, but everyone just kind of took up after them. Yeah. So that's how we end up in London. But the population in London, similar to the population in some places here in America, you hear that, you know, go back home. This is home. Like, what do you do? Right. So right. To your question, I think directly, I feel like I was viewed as an outsider a lot, but I gained comfort in being around my, my West Indian friends who, you know, I was never viewed that way with them. And that's why I kind of associated myself with them. More than, and because Indians were the minority of the minority, I didn't have an Indian friend either. There was one other Indian kid in my school. Oh, wow, so you were pretty yep. isolated in yeah, that he, regard. Yeah, he, he was a Sikh Indian kid. He had the turban on his head. And like he got beaten up a lot, and the turban knocked off his head quite a bit. And so there wasn't like there was a lot of Indian kids. It's, there was two kids from Mauritius who were looked Indian, but they were from Mauritius, and they spoke great French, and they, you know, because there was a lot of Indian migration to that part of the world. But I didn't have any Indian friends growing up at all. Zero. Wow. So it was an Indian kid, a bunch of West Indian. But okay, and then you were well accepted by your teachers because you were well behaved and you had mm -hmm. the grades. Yep. At home, 
presumably that kind of merit a little bit or no? You know, traditional Indian parents, you have to get good grades, authoritarian, strict, disciplinary, not much conveying of love in the sense that not that, you know, looking back in retrospect, not like they didn't do things that displayed love. There wasn't much affection. Like it wasn't like wasn't spoken about a lot. My dad literally was still alive in great shape and everything, but it may have been ten or fifteen years ago the first time I heard him say I love you. Hmm. So think in my, you know, late twenties, early thirties. So yeah, so maybe expressing love was simply okay in the things they provided for you right. and how they pushed your education, but Absolutely. not so much in words or physical affection. Right, exactly. Like, like what is hugging? This is like I came to America and everyone's hugging everyone. I'm like, this is really strange behavior. Like, <laughs> in high school, like people have like people hugging in the hallways. Like, what is this? So oh, I had not thought about that, but yeah, I was a shock. You're 17, all of a sudden your classmates want to hug you. Yeah, like this is really so I went to all boys school, my secondary schooling, the thing from 11, 12 to 16, 17 mm-hmm. was an all boys school. Nobody's hugging. And you know, the British are known to be quote unquote ineffectual to a certain extent too. Yeah, yeah. We kind of see them as very reserved. Stoic. Right. Yeah. You don't express emotions. And you've got all these different things coming together. I come to America, I come to Irving, Texas, and people are hugging in the hallways. And so, oh, it's a mixed school. And I'm like, this is, the boys and girls are hugging each other, like, openly in school. Like, yeah, so it was very, very interesting. Huh. <laughs> what did you think living in the U.S. was going to be like? Like, what did you expect? Because we were talking about, like, we have this image of British people being very reserved. Well, you must have had an image of what So the, the good Americans thing was that we had family in D.C., mm-hmm. and we had traveled there several times, and we'd been to Canada. And so I kind of knew what life was like, not intimately, but because you're here on holiday, right? So you don't really right. know. Um, but you at least had, like, an actual experience Right, yes, we, we had experience. Then you don't realize how different, different parts of the United States are. It's such a big country. You come to Dallas, you go to California, you go to D.C., you know, they're all very different places. You know, we have family that come here from D.C. or Jersey and, and say people in Dallas are so friendly. Personally, my theory is that you chalk it up to weather. Like, I, <laughs> I, I would say, like in London, literally, like, because it was so cold and damp, you want to get to where you're going as quickly as possible. You don't want to stop to talk to anyone on the street. You have your parker jacket zipped up to the end, and you're walking in line. You go to New York, the same people, are just they want to get to where they're going to. That's it. And I think it's because of the weather. It's just it's cold. <laughs> In Dallas, you have the opportunity to sit around and talk to people for a few minutes. It's nice outside, right? Mm. So we had experience in D.C. I had never been to Dallas ever in my life. We end up in Dallas because of the weather. My mother had vacationed here back in 84, 85. She came back to London and said, if we ever move to America, we'll move into Dallas. Why? Well, she had come in November at 85 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> people love our winter. That's true. So we end up in Dallas. The same lady 20 years later says, I hate it. It's so hot. I said, well, we're here because of you now, right? So I mean, but moving to Dallas was culture shock, obviously. I remember within two weeks of being here, I was called a wet pack, which I had no idea what that was. Oh, yeah. yes. The U.S. packy. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Yeah. And I was like, oh, no, here we go again. So mm-hmm. that was my first, like, mm, although I can tell you that the abundance of opportunity here in America, I never felt that in London. I can tell you that, and again, going back to weather, the kind of phenomenon, the feeling you get from different weather. I can literally tell that I probably was more depressed in London because of the weather than here. I think that it is overcast a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I, I think maybe genetically, maybe DNA, I don't know what it is. You know, we come from my DNA is from India. So that's a tropical country. And being in Dallas, I think helped me switch some of that, like made me feel just better just because of sunshine all the time. Like even like I love the summertime. It can be 110 degrees. I don't care. I absolutely love it. 
I have no problem with the hot weather at all. I have no problem. I, I'll drive my windows open. It doesn't bother me one bit. I absolutely hmm. love it. That speaks to me a lot more. So, you know, part of being or adding to some of the challenges in London, the weather definitely add to it. You go back home at 4.30 from school and it's dark. Yeah. I definitely gravitate towards that a lot more. Mm -hmm. But yeah, coming to America with Glitch Culture Shock all the way from, you know, interacting with people and then you the little things, you know, driving on the different sides of the street and language, you know, being different in nuances in language. There's a whole period of, I think, I don't know which age would be, the, if I were to guess, I would say it'd probably be easier to move between the ages of like zero and let's call it six and seven, maybe eight. But I think anytime you move somewhere between the ages of, I don't know, eight and 10 and 17, it's really hard. You know, I look at my 10 year old now who's just finished elementary school yesterday, but she's got friends that she'd been in school with for six years and they're all moving to middle school now together. And so I see that cohort, that tribe community building, if you will. I think about me moving here at 17, like every friend I had is gone, just evaporates. And so you come here, you have no friends. I mean, zero friends at all. 17-year-old boy, enough challenges with that already. You come in, you have to like readjust. I think it, taking that into account and some of what we experience as kids, it makes us good chameleons. It almost forces us to adapt. You know, Darwin's thing about not mm -hmm. fitness, but the ones that can adapt the most. I think it almost forces that upon you. And again, once we came here, we didn't, I didn't know anyone at all. Like we didn't know a single person Actually, my mother had two friends here locally. They were both Indian guys, but I didn't know a single person here in Dallas, period. Now, were you, uh, were you is shy or? I wasn't shy. I was overweight. And because I was overweight, I was very conscious about being overweight. Um, so I can tell you exactly. Um, I was probably nine or 10 years old. I was participating with, in school plays and different things as a kid. And I stopped participating in those kind of activities once I realized I was overweight. Once you realized, so you'd been overweight, you just hadn't realized it, or you don't realize it until you're reminded about it. That's one of the nice things about Charlie Lenny. <laughs> until something happens, until someone points it out to you, yeah, until someone points so it out, you're you, living your life. Not are you a packy, but you're a fat packy. You're like, you know, well, what happens now? I can tell you that from that perspective, there's a lot of conscious thinking, like, okay, who am I? What am I? Identity, identity, identity. And then coming to America, I was overweight when I came to America, so there was some of that weighing on me too. So I wouldn't say I was introverted or shy, perhaps. I just didn't feel confident. So I don't know if there's a mm -hmm. correlation there or not, but there was some of that playing into the picture too. Yeah, and so. I think that, like you said, it as it is when you're 17, there are challenges just because you're a teenager. Right. And so if on top of it, you're overweight, and this is exactly the sort of thing that kids like to point out, mm -hmm. and you're new. Yep. No one knows you. And so, and so and now you're in America. You're, so you're, in my case, you're a British Indian now moving to America and you're trying to, friendship is based on a lot of, at least some commonalities, right? So what things, sure. and so when you look at a person, you try to establish like, what do we have in common first, right? How do we create this opportunity to build off of, right? And so coming here and trying to find commonality with people. And so I did one year of high school here in America and stumbled and struggled through it. And it was, it was okay. Once we moved here, after a couple of months of living in a, in a small apartment, we moved to an apartment complex where a lot of Indian people were there. But Indians from India, Indians from Pakistan, who had nothing in common with except probably food and music. But it was literally the first time you were fully surrounded first by people time. that shared your ancestry. First time ever, besides immediate family. Wow. Number. 
Was that right. bizarre for you? Very, because they were looking at us like, wait, you're from London, you listen to Hindi music, like, what's that all about? How does that happen, right? And I can kind of explain through the process of, you know, parents and then watching movies and then learning Hindi through movies. And so there was that aspect of it. Then the commonality is food and music. And okay, fine, fair enough. And then, you know, you start to establish a little bit of trust and then you start developing friends. But it was a bumpy road for a while, for, for a long time, I can tell you. And even to some extent, even now, when I tell people, like, my last name is Daniel, which now with the influx of, you know, some of the South Indians, you're seeing more Christian-based names. But, you know, Raj Daniels, I mean, that's, that's two different worlds right there in itself, right? I mean, like, wait a second, how does this work, right? So having to explain that piece of it. Now, it's more common now, so it's more accepted, but we're talking 30 years after moving here. The previous 20 years of trying to explain Raj Daniels, like, many a time, you know, how does that happen? How do you get the last name Daniels? I'm like, what? That's a story there, too, right? So Yeah, sure. But I think, yeah, each generation has become more and more diverse, so the question mm-hmm. comes up. I would say... Those sorts of questions are probably less frequent, but not necessarily by much. However, the approach is different. There's more curiosity in it, mm-hmm. where I think 30 years ago, people were almost annoyed or taken aback by it. Like, so they, many a time, I'd walk into a meeting or an appointment, and they'd say, Mr. Daniels, and I'd walk in, and you'd see the look on their face, and they're like, wait a you weren't the Mr. Daniel we were imagining walking in. Like, we're, we're imagining Jack Daniels walking in, right? Like, what does that look like, right? So from that perspective. Yeah. Or maybe I think we also talked about how people of Indian ancestry also Absolutely. did not have fantastic reactions. Yes, there's been several times, like, they would look at me kind of crooked and like, you know, how do you get the name Daniels? And then I have to go into the story and, you know, missionaries in India and three generations back and medication and Bibles and mm-hmm. that's what happened. The people questioning it just kind of being uncomfortable I've, with and, it. And I actually think... Till today, I think more people are polite and won't question it. And I actually appreciate the curiosity of, you know, hey, how is that? Because I'm not offended by it at all. I think it's a great question to ask. I mean, I, I'm curious about people's names, too. You know, how do you get that kind of name? So, yeah. yeah, I think sometimes um, a lot of the discomfort with the PCNS can be solved precisely by just simply mm-hmm. saying, I'm curious and mm-hmm. fascinated. It seems there's an interesting story behind your name. Yep care to share you know just an invitation to i agree conversation yeah, exactly an invitation to a conversation because mm-hmm. the intention is well read yes I absolutely. Think the problem isn't the question no it's, it's the not. intention if your intention's you know innocent then great go right. for it ask the question it's a conversation mm-hmm. yeah so yeah that's pretty cool how many languages do you speak because we've already mentioned gujarati hindi. hindi i learned french as a kid if i feel like i fall down in france today i can still kind of pick up a little bit of it I can get by with Spanish, absolutely no problem. Uh, a little bit of Swahili, and then English, Punjabi, I think, too, kind of, depending on my environment. Is Kachi similar? Kachi, yes, right? Kachi, Kachi is another one yeah, too, yes. Yeah, because that's close to Gujarat, So, my, so my, my mother's family speaks Kachi, so we can, we can yeah. work our way through that one too. And distant memories of this yes. <laughs> yep. very long ago conversation we once had about yep. Kachi and Gujarati being similar. Yep. So, we so can work our way through that too. We can work our way through absolutely. that one. So, huh, how did you learn Spanish, or when, or why? Spanish was being in America. I mean, just so, so my mother, phenomenal lady, when we came to America, she worked with, she's a seamstress. And so she got a job of managing a group of seamstresses in Dallas. Uh, she worked for Victor Costa for a while too. Oh, nice. But, um, so, but everyone that worked in the, in the rag trade back then were all Spanish or Hispanic or Mexican people. And since they didn't speak good English, my mother learned Spanish. My mother is fluent in Spanish till today. She, she uses it all the time. And, you know, us being around, I never look at language as being hard to learn. I always feel like, you know, it's just like anything else. You just learn it. 
there's no barrier or boundary to learning another language in my mind. I think it's all, I think a lot of it is psychological. Some of it can be, depending on the language, mouth structure, tongue, et cetera, et cetera. But if you try enough, you can at least get by with it. I can give you a case where I was actually working in a fabric business and I was working with Vietnamese individuals. They were having a hard time pronouncing the numbers in English when we we're doing inventory. And I said, look, teach me your numbers, teach me some of it. And we'll, so we, we'll, do, we'll do like a million dollar inventory all in Vietnamese because I just learned the numbers. I mean, just doing it. So even now, just learning Spanish to me or having the opportunity to be around Hispanic or Mexican people and speaking the language, I don't, not a challenge at all. And my wife, who did five years of Plano school and then took Spanish in school, she speaks it fluently too. Wow. So, so nice. And at home, what's, what, what do all these so languages look in, like at home? So interesting. So my girls, so we had a nanny for a while who spoke Spanish. The first language my girls learned was Spanish. My youngest one went to Spanish schoolhouse, so that's all she knew. At home, it goes between English and Hindi or Gujarati, depending on what we're doing. Uh, majority is English, but we're in this phase right now. So my parents, what they did with us, my brother and I, till I think we're about between the ages of seven and 10, somewhere in there, they started implementing a rule that if we speak to you in English, you respond in English. If we speak to you in Gujarati, you respond in Gujarati. And so we're implementing a similar rule right now with my kids to where if we speak to you in English, we need an English answer. If we speak to you in Hindi, we need a Hindi answer. And my oldest one just took it upon herself maybe a few weeks ago to start using Duolingo to learn Hindi. So she can write the Hindi alphabet. I can barely write the Hindi alphabet, but she's learning Hindi between that and We've been playing Hindi music in the house since they've been, you know, since they were born. So they've got that in their head too. And I kind of, I told my girls recently, I kind of planted an Easter egg in their head. Um, there's this uh, Sanskrit-based mantra, essentially, that my girls have been singing since they were able to speak. We've, I've been singing it to them, and they've been singing it every morning and every night when they wake up in the morning before school and before they go to bed every night since they've been little. And it's just something we do. Well, what the Easter egg was is that they're already used to saying these words. Mm -hmm. And so now creating or now saying phrasal words in Hindi, it's not unfamiliar to them. What I find a lot of times people struggle because they have unfamiliarity of how to say the words or how to say some of the vowels, the consonants, whatever it might look like. But we've planted the Easter egg in their head their entire life when they're 10, the oldest one, where they don't hesitate to say something in Hindi where I find a lot of language learners hesitate because they don't want to say it wrong, where they don't hesitate at all. They just, they just say, say the word. Yeah. I always call music the gateway drug. <laughs> yeah, I actually used to teach languages, and I used to always make everybody learn how to sing in the language. Mm -hmm. Part of it is because you learn how to move between sounds more easily, more readily, mm -hmm. and it eliminates a lot of that hesitation because you're engaging in more than one thing, so you're not obsessing on, is that the perfect way to say that right. particular sound? something they can do repetitively mm -hmm. when they're gone. But then when, when we come together as a class, we would do it together and it's a very unifying thing. And mm -hmm. language is social. If there's not a social experience to go with it, you'll forget it, which is why so many people take two years of French and right. 10 years later can't even say good morning because mm -hmm. there's a social ability. Whether it's my house, my parents' house, my in-laws' house, my in-laws will speak to them in Hindi all the time, like, you know, go to this, get that, do whatever. And they understand what it is. It's just getting them to speak it now. That's the next game in this whole phase of getting Hindi in there. Yeah. But I want them to learn it because studies have shown that bilingual, multilingual individuals utilize different parts of their brain for different things. Like There's that aspect of it too. But I also feel like from that romantic notion, that cultural notion, that I really want them to experience and feel some of 
what myself and their mother and you know people around them have felt, whether it comes to music or movies or whatever that might be. I also heard a gentleman one time, and he's talking about Sanskrit specifically, and he said this, and I had never realized this. He said, you can never truly understand the culture until you understand the literature in their native tongue. Now, my Hindi, I can listen to audiobooks on Hindi, in fact, Hindi podcasts, which give me some insight into the culture, into the literature. But my Hindi hasn't been good enough. I haven't spent the time to read Hindi that well, where I could pick up a piece of Hindi literature and read it. But when he said that, it was very eye-opening to me. He said, you know, it's so true. You know, I don't, I don't know about Spanish or Hispanic or Mexican culture, but I'm sure there are books. If you read them, will give you so much more insight into why people are the way they are and what they do, what they do. And I feel the same way about Hindi too or Sanskrit too, that, you know, I want them to get that same cultural insight that, that we have. I actually agree. I don't think it's actually a language dependent thing. Like we talked about, words have different fields of meaning mm -hmm. that sometimes overlap, but it's incomplete. If you're not reading literature in its original language, then you're not really getting the full picture. And that's okay if you don't speak the language. Far better to get right. a fantastic partial than mm -hmm. none at all, right? But if you have access to that full picture, yep. it is definitely a different experience. You get different insight and you also get a different feeling. I've mm -hmm. read books in both languages to where I, you know, we had a book that we had to read in a class here in the States. It was in English, but it was by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I'm not going to read him in English if I don't have to. Mm -hmm. So I read it in English so that I could, you know, follow along with the class. Mm -hmm. And this is what was required, right. but I immediately bought the book in Spanish so that I could read it in its original because the sensation in my body after reading in one language versus the other is different because Absolutely. the weight and the field of meaning of those words, right. it's different. And the references made in Spanish, certain words will, or certain phrases will elicit all this cultural content that I do have access to. Mm -hmm. When I read it in the English, I didn't see it because the translation doesn't bring it. So then I read it in the Spanish and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I get it. And so, all of a sudden I feel like the story all over it. You know, not just in my you know, mind, but everywhere. We watch these Hindi movies occasionally, and my wife likes to have the subtitles on, and I hate having subtitles on. <laughs> because, first of all, you almost have to read them because they're there in front of your mind. It just works that way. But I feel like it loses that depth of the nuances of what they're saying in the story, actually. And we keep it on, too, because my kids like to follow along, too. But if I ever have the choice of watching a Hindi movie by myself, I turn the subtitles off every single time. Mm -hmm. Because I want to experience the movie in its essence, in its full Hindi-ness, right? So the words are coming out of it. So Yeah, I agree. With languages, I speak for sure. But with languages, I don't speak for the very same reason. I want them on. I don't yes, want them done. Absolutely. Because I think, once again, once you change the voice and the intonation, you've mm -hmm. taken even more meaning out. Right. You know, I'm, I already don't have access to the language. Mm -hmm. So now if you take the sounds of it right. and, and the emotional expression coming through the voices, mm -hmm. you've taken even more content out. I, I agree. And so it waters it down even more. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I know what you mean. When you actually speak the language, yeah, I've had that occurrence, obviously, to mm -hmm. international friends and mm -hmm. whatever. And you've got the subtitles on. You try so hard not to read them, but you, you can. can. They're words. They're there. You want to... You end up reading them anyway. So you're basically reading the entire thing. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a little frustrating. But. So tell me about travel. You said as a kid you traveled you from London, you would come. So my grandparents lived in Kenya. Mm -hmm. And we had, that's my maternal grandparents lived in Kenya. And in America, we had my dad's older sister, older brother. And in Canada, we had an aunt from my mom's side. And so every year, we would be in one of these three places. We would be either in East Africa, say Kenya. 
Nairobi mostly, or we would be in DC or we would be in Canada. And so international travel was very normal to us. And my dad worked for British Rail and they had an agreement, a partnership with the, it was called Sealink at the time, but it was the, the cruise boat essentially that went across the channel to France. And so we would do those trips on weekends all the time because we get discount tickets. And so that was our sphere of where we traveled, but we did it very, like every year it would be somewhere. We would be on airplanes every single year, which again, looking back at, you know, how my parents were able to make ends meet at the time, it was a very, um, it was a lot of luxury for that time, but because they also wanted to see their family, that was an incentive for them. And my, especially my mom's mom who lived in Kenya at the time. So my mom would go there every year for every other year to go visit her. And then they started coming to visit us too, but we were exposed to, you know, that part of the world at very, very early ages. And again, you know, you go there and so you're a British Indian kid in a predominantly, you know, African country, you know, you know, so you're like, hey, this is interesting. And they speak Swahili over there. So my parents speak fluent Swahili. My brother and I still speak a little bit, but my entire family over there spoke fluent Swahili. So then it'd be Gujarati, Swahili, Kachi, English, like just always playing in the background, right? Doesn't matter what it is. If they're speaking to the local shopkeeper or their friend is Swahili in the house, it's Gujarati or Kachi or what, you know, so this whole milieu of languages going on all the time. Being exposed to what I would call real poverty, like some of the slums in, in Nairobi, some of those areas and seeing that, that and being at such a young age, so I think my first trip to Nairobi, I was two years old, if or that's the story that I was two years old. Um, but you know, going back to several times and seeing like what true poverty and how people out there are living, I think that gave us a whole different I can't use the word appreciation because as a child you don't really know appreciation. It did give us perspective, the perspective that my friends around me didn't have, right? And then, okay, there are the African black people and there are the black people that are my good friends here in London, who are the West Indians and others. I grew up with. There's no real relation between these two, except for the way they look, physical characteristics, right? And so there's that, there's that, not only navigating, but understanding that people from different parts of the world who look the same aren't the same. Right. So I, I think it layered on this, this different level of understanding, complexity, if you will. Again, you're trying to maneuver through different areas as, as a kid. And it's a phenomenal growth experience. I mean, it takes your brains to places that you wouldn't even imagine, right? Sight, sound, smell. I always tell people if you go to India, it's a sensory overload. I've never been to Mexico, so I don't know what it's like. But if you go to India or you know Kenya, horns and animals and things out of the sky and just trash <laughs> and animals. I mean, the animals just running around like you, you don't realize how sterile of an environment we live in here. To your early point, I tell people all the time: my kids wake up in the morning, they get dressed, they get into a car. The car takes them to a building, they get into a building. They spend the time in the building and it happens every single day. There's no exposure to elements, individuals. There's, I almost feel like senses get numb. You're not exposed to anything. Whereas when we traveled, especially like going through, you know, to Kenya, seeing the traffic, seeing the people, just seeing the different things, like the noises just mm -hmm. all around you, your senses are popping all the time. Whereas here they're not. Yeah, I have to admit when I... Uh... And now when I go back to Mexico City, I have a two-week limit. <laughs> After two weeks, I'm ready to leave. Because I grew up outside of the city, both here and in Mexico. It's, just like, mm -hmm. it's always on the outside, yep. right? But yeah, the sensory overload. At first, mm -hmm. I'm so excited. I love it all. You know, all the sounds and, you know, all the smells and just the movement and like, the people. But after a couple of weeks, because I'm so accustomed to not being overwhelmed. And all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, I just... 
I've got to get away from this. Airplanes going overhead, honking horns, motorcycles, mm-hmm. people calling their wares. And what was exciting at the beginning after a while, you just feel exhausted. You don't realize how much energy it takes to deal with all of that. Mm-hmm. And so my tolerance used to be really high because I still live in Mexico City. But now that I don't, right. now it's about about two weeks in. I'm like, okay, guys, let's go to the beach. <laughs> go do something yeah, else. Exactly. So, so we had this dichotomy of you know, going to Nairobi sometimes and we come to D.C. Again, it's just like a much better version of London. The streets are so wide, so much room, so much space. Canada, we absolutely love Canada. Beautiful to look at, you know, a lot of country, a lot of greenery there back in Toronto at the time. But we got a lot of opportunities to do that travel all the time to see how different worlds look. And I think, again, like I said, I don't know if we had appreciation as a child. It's hard to have appreciation as a child. We gained perspective for sure. I think that's the perfect way of putting it because I agree with you. I don't know that appreciation is the word. It's not like you come home and as a 10-year-old, you're like, I'm so fortunate. No, but you do have perspective. So all of a sudden, you're like, well, maybe... Freshly returned from one of those trips, you don't complain as quickly. You have perspective. In retrospect, you look back and say, you know, like, you realize that there are people worse off than you are. Yeah. Now, I don't know if that garners appreciation or not, but you do have a realization that this is, makes you a little more resilient. The, the, I think. the spectrum is much wider than you think it is, so much broader than you think it is. Yeah, so. you're not, yeah, you don't feel sorry for yourself quite so right. easily. Exactly. Because you understand yep. life is quite a bit more difficult than you imagine. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I agree with that. What about travel with your girls? Do they travel? So we've taken our older two to India one time. We took them in 2013, I guess, when they were three. To India? Yeah, when they were three and five years old. I find that interesting because um, I guess India is one of the places you really go back to the least, right? It is. I did a few times when I was single. This is the first time my wife and I went. We took our girls to go see her family over there. We wanted them to get a little bit of exposure. We plan taking them again, I think, this year or next year. I didn't want to take them so early because I know how much travel we did as young kids and I don't know a lot of it. I think there's a kind of like an age, maybe six, seven, eight years old, we start remembering or at least a few things. Like my wife talks about, she went to Hawaii, I think when she was 10 years old and she doesn't really remember anything. No. So I want to take them back now that they're older, well, when they remember, because it's expensive to go out there. I mean, you know, it, you're talking. Halfway around the world. Right. So from a time and resource perspective, it, it, it takes time and energy to get out there. but. I want to, we've done an American trip, we took it to Canada. My wife has this great thing where she wants to go to every state with them. So we every time we plan a trip, a road trip to Arkansas, flew to California, done New York, uh, done Chicago, we did Canada. So we're doing different places with them. I've learned very quickly that they don't like road trips. I love road trips. <laughs> they hate being in the car. I used to love being in the car. I love going on road trips. They don't like it at all. But we try to get them out at least once or twice a year. We're really bound by a school schedule, which I really detest. I, I hate it. I kind of feel like we're over a barrel yeah. from every perspective. But uh, it is what it is. I do want to take them to more places as they get older. In fact, we've even spoken about you know doing individual trips with them, meaning that my wife would take one girl and go somewhere, come back, and then I would do something else with another one, maybe for milestone birthdays or different events in their life. I would like to travel with them a lot more. I I don't know how sold I am on the school system or education in general at this juncture which we're at right now. So I have this pipe dream where I take them out of school and go travel for a year and do whatever we want to come back. Let's see what happens. But I want them to be, you know, you always want to show them those parts of the world where they realize that when people talk about 
part of winning the lottery of being born in a country like this? They're absolutely right. Now, I don't say that we have an equal playing field. I don't believe we do. I think it's very slanted. But I do feel like you have advantages to being, being born here. Like what? Well, I think being born here and being born even in a low to moderate income family, you have definite advantages than if you're born in a rural area in Africa or in India where literally you have to walk to go get water with still a lot of young girls have to do it. You should really task to the young girls in the house they have to go walk for miles or whatever it might be, the dangers of doing that and some of the you know the perils that come with doing that. Um, the fact that some of them are, you know, um, married off very early or they're used to barter with, whether it's tribalism or bring families together, whatever it might be. Still happens a lot in rural India and rural Africa. And so I think they have that advantage absolutely. Or people in this country at least have that advantage. I will tell you that Maybe 10, 12 years ago in my immaturity, I would say that everyone has an equal playing field here, but they don't. I've done some reading and research about that. And, you know, if we want to go off on a small tangent, I feel like there's a great book called Scarcity. I don't know if you've read it or not, but it talks about some of the conversations around dinner tables in different households and how they've done studies to find that children that are brought up in households where scarcity is repeated over and over again, the lack of what we have, it actually, they've shown that the brain doesn't grow and form a certain way where you, have can, where you can think beyond what you need to think about. Right? The, like there's no idea of long-term planning because everything's about paying the rent today, can we get food today, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a little tangent. But one of the reasons I want them to explore not only internationally, but nationally here, like I took my, we took our daughter, our 10-year-old, to go volunteer at the North Texas Food Bank for her 10th birthday last summer. As an experience to see that, you know what, we are packaging food for people here locally within miles of where we live. People that, in fact, my wife just went two days ago to deliver what they call, I think it's called love packs, but they have packages of food they deliver to schools for kids to have food during the summer because when they're in school, they have state-sponsored, government-sponsored meals, but when they go home for summer or Christmas or spring break, there's no guarantee that they will have two or three meals a day throughout these next three months. So I want my girls to see that. Again, I don't know if I'm trying to implement appreciation or perspective. They're young. I think it's a good practice, though, because, again, to the idea that we are very insulated in our cars and building-to-building life, Mm -hmm. there are few opportunities for children to actually see that if even in what feels like a safe, affluent place, mm-hmm. things are not the same for everybody. How else would they know? They're children. They don't a- automatically absolutely. know. And so I think that as a child, if you are not exposed to those sorts of experiences, you can very easily grow up believing that there are no poor people here, mm-hmm. where in fact, you know, our homeless population has a significant number of homeless children. Mm-hmm. And as a child, you don't imagine other children being homeless. Homeless, you know, that's something you see on movies in New right. York on a corner and it's a man with a sign, you know? <laughs> you, you see what yep. I mean? Because you don't have that city experience. I think those of us that have lived in big cities, like London for you, Mexico City for mm-hmm. me, from a very young age, we got to experience a lot more of that here mm-hmm. without a parent to actually take you and say, let's go to the food bank, let's go to the homeless shelter. Right. Let's how else would they know that this exists right here in their backyard? They wouldn't. I agree. Yeah. So that, so that, you know, going back to your question about travel, I think travel shows some of that, especially international travel. So that, you know, India was part family, but part seeing also when you see the people on the street and you kind of get a feeling. 
wow, like, like looking out of the window out of the car, like what's the difference between me and that person just where I was born? That 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 was because of the birth, the, you know, the lottery of being born, right? So ovarian lottery, I think they call it. I never heard of that. Well, I think it's also um, traveling also is a neat opportunity to actually see the value in speaking other languages Mm -hmm. because then it's not just a course in class to pass. Mm -hmm. It's something that allows you to connect with people. Right. And so all of a sudden being able to speak Hindi, being able to speak, you know, French or anything, Mm -hmm. any other language, there's a value to it. I agree. You all of a sudden see, oh my gosh, I have access to this community, to, to these people, I can ask this person this question. I can mm-hmm. buy this thing that I want. I can get help. Yep. It's valuable to travel at any age, but I think it's very life-changing when you do it when you're very young. I agree. Yeah. Life demands choices. So tell me about a dream that you've had that you just had to walk away from. Sometimes we have to pick. It's a hard one. Road trips. <laughs> I told my wife, so we did a road trip mm, a month ago to Amarillo just to go somewhere for the weekend. And there was so much complaining and coming back. And I know it's half in jest, but there's a great movie called Inside Out. It's a kid's movie. They have all these different personality characters in there and have these different islands in her mind. And one of the islands kind of collapses and goes away. And I said, my, my dream of doing road trips with my family just kind of collapsed and went away. <laughs> Going back to your question, I've been really lucky. I have this ability to manifest things. And it sounds strange, but I choose to believe I go through life and things work out for me. I can tell you that there's things I've walked away from because I realized they're not for me. So I'll give you an example of that. I went to flight school because I thought I wanted to be a commercial pilot. And I went to Oklahoma to do that. And even I flew some airplanes out of Addison here. And my instructor would take me over to Tyler and we would go up in the air and we'd do spins and rotation and all the kind of fun stuff in the airplane. One day my instructor looked at me and said, you know, they don't let you do this in commercial flying. I knew that in my heart somewhere, right? But I just thought, like, like, okay, commercial flying is literally like flying a bunch of people, one place to another. Yes, you're in the sky, but you're not free. Like flying by yourself, the freedom that comes with that, right? And so I can tell you that I had a dream of being a commercial pilot. And I walked away from it, not because... I couldn't do it, but because I realized that it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And so I've walked away from things realizing it's not what I thought it was going to be or it's not what I thought when I started out. But I can't tell you that I haven't pursued what I wanted to pursue ever. So like, you're walking away than a voluntary choice. Yeah. I've, I've walked away from dreams, but yes, I did walk my because, because there were different realizations. And for good or for bad, I've gone after things that I wanted to do. And I still do it. In fact, I do it twice as much now because I'm trying to lead by example with my girls. I'll give you an example. In 2017, so I've been writing some blogs since 2016. And um, people have mentioned, have you, take, have you thought about publishing a book in blogs? And I published a book in 2017. I self-published. But I wanted to show my girl that, look, I wanted to do this, and I did it. And it's out there. And people are buying it. And it's moving. And so I'm doing it more for them today. But I've never been one to kind of hold myself back and say, you know what, mm, not for me. This dream is not for me. I'm going to walk away from it. So I, I can't ever say I've done that. Maybe I didn't dream big enough. I don't know. But the ones that I wanted to do, I went after it. I said, you know what, repercussions? Sure, absolutely. But I'm going to go after it. So. Do you think that's just part of your personality or could the way you grew up be part of why? I think it's both. I think um, we're 
chameleon, the adaption machine that I think I talked about, and mm -hmm. going back all the way to the beginning, the curiosity piece. Like, my wife jokes and says to me that if I walk up to a door and it says locked or closed, I'll still try to open it just to check and see if it is. And that's just my personality. Like, I don't believe like something really locked or closed. I just, like, I have to get to the bottom of it. Like, what? It's that curiosity piece, I think. And I told my girls this story, and I'll share this brief story with you. I remember being eight or 10 years old and in primary school, old British primary school, think Hogwarts, they right? big gates. And there was this gate that led to the main street. And there was a thick half inch chain wrapped around the gate with a big, thick padlock. So you're talking about me, a 10 year old kid, you know, I love the idea of picking locks. And so I spend lunch hour after lunch hour with all kinds of different homemade tools trying to pick this lock. Now, I don't know that the gate is locked and has a chain around it with a padlock. I just think the padlock and a chain. So I pick this lock after just weeks and weeks of trying. I undo the lock and as soon as I do it, another kid runs up to me and that's, I'm hiding and trying to lose. And I drop the chain in the padlock, but it falls outside the gate onto the street. And I can't get to it because the gate is actually locked by another lock. And so I get in trouble. I go to the headmaster's office, or headmistress's office. I get in trouble with this. But my personality is just such that I don't believe that you can't figure things out. I just feel like there isn't anything that we... I tell my kids all the time, we put a bloody man on the moon. We put, we put people on the moon. Like, what can't we figure out? You know, given enough time and energy and resources. So, so to your question, like, I, I just don't feel like... If I feel like I want to pursue something, go after something... I don't see why I can't. It might take me longer to do so, but I mean, I might as well do it while I'm here. Yeah. So I don't, I don't see anything that's beyond, like I have photographs on my phone just recently. I'm fixing a electrical receptacle in my house and there's two of them that are identical. And my eight year old is on the other one, taking that thing apart, fixing that. And I'm saying, just go for it, do it. I don't care if she screws it up or messes it up. You know what? I'd rather encourage that kind of behavior. And yeah, I've turned the power off to them. That's fine. She's not gonna get hurt. But she's taking my tools and she's having at it and going at it. I'm like, and I want to encourage that constant curious behavior that nothing, especially again, really going back to the fact that they're girls. And I think I have a lot of this, maybe it's baggage, maybe it's perspective. You know, my, my mother didn't have the opportunity to finish her schooling back in East Africa when she was a kid. My, my grandfather had nine daughters. She was the second oldest. And at the age of 12, she was pulled out of school to help the house and she had to work to help support the house. And I think I have a lot of that in me too, where now that I have girls, I really want to push them to show them, that, you know what? And I don't say that I have this t-shirt that says um, impossible comes true, but I, I want them to walk out in the world with that mentality that, you know what, things that you're after or want to pursue, walk away by choice, not because you didn't try. And so that's what I've experienced in my life is that I've walked away by choice, not because I didn't attempt to follow that dream. I like that. Has your sense of belonging changed over the years in terms of how you feel living here now? I feel extremely confident in who I am. I think this happened over the last 10 years, maybe a little bit more time. I think being married has helped me a lot. I think having children has helped me even more. Um, having that feeling of unconditional love with my children, I think that's really, really helped. I can tell you that, and even in relationships, there's always some give and take, there's always some negotiation going on somewhere. I can literally tell you with my girls, maybe now they're getting older, the 10 year old, a little bit more negotiation or starting to develop. But I can tell you the first eight, 10 years, there's no negotiation with children and love. There is no, if you do this, I love you. And if you don't do this, I won't. Hmm. It's such a, it's such a pure feeling. And 
I really want to be intentional about conveying that to them as much as possible, that you will never negotiate my love. I'll always love you no matter what. And I say that now, and you know, there haven't been any big events as of up till now, but I really felt that completeness. And I really felt like that piece was missing in my life for whatever reason, you know, maybe I needed more nurturing, more positivity, more you can do it. And you can do it in the true sense of not you can do it, but maybe you can't. Mm. I think, I think there's a, I think there's, I think sometimes you get this feeling when you speak to someone that even though he or she might be encouraging you to do something, you feel like they're saying it, but the faith is not there. The, the, the intentional energy behind it is not there. And I feel like with my girls and my children that it's it's a pure 100% unconditional feeling of love. And and I think there's a, a wholeness, a fullness, of, and, and, and enoughness that comes with that. Mm. That, that gives me I love a, that word, a, whole, a whole different like sense of confidence than, than prior to that. I think for the first time in my life, I'm enough for these three people. Whereas before, there's always been that 1% or whatever it is where not quite enough unless there is this along with it. So that's, that's how I feel now. And so that's changed how you feel in the community. Absolutely. It, 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 it's changed how I feel no matter what. It's, it's, like, it's almost like armor in a weird kind of way. No matter what I go out in the world and do, and when I go back to them, I'm 100%. So tell me about your future. What do you see? So I have a spreadsheet through 2036. <laughs> wow. I got married in 2006. And the spreadsheet 2036 is happily married to Judy. And so as long as I open up once, I open it up once or twice a month, and as long as I can aim for that, everything I do needs to point to that direction. Nice. Whether it means being a husband, boyfriend, provider, father, son, whatever those roles entail, that's the goal I need to hit. Hmm. So I put that 30-year yardstick out there. <laughs> nice. I'm sure she's very happy about that. How'd you guys meet by the way? So we had bumped into each other with you at UT in the early 90s, common friends, didn't stay in touch. Then I was doing some nonprofit work here locally in 2000, 2001, and literally serendipity, I had a booth and I was working in this nonprofit organization and there was a booth across the way and there was a lady working there. She was working for an eye foundation that did cataract surgeries. And I began to speak to this lady and she said, my name is Mrs. Aurora. I said, yeah, I need to know a girl named Chuhi Aurora. You know, that's my daughter. This is 10 years after we had first bumped each other at UTD. So our, our sliding doors live for doing this, interacting. And um, I said, well, give Chuhi my number. And I'd love to, you know, just catch up what she'd been up to the last 10 years. She gave her my number and we went to dinner one night at Cheesecake Factory, 2002, 2003. And the rest is history. So I took people out doing nonprofit work, doing charitable work, and I met my wife. Actually, I met my mother-in-law, but there you go. But she led you to your wife. Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Other than I'm going to be actually putting up links to your website, to your blog. Thank you so much. Uh, are there any other handles no, you want to share been, and where you're on social? Nope. I mean, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn, but it's nothing. I'm not, I'm not much for social media. Mm -hmm. So I utilitarian. All right, so rajdaniels.com. Perfect. Yep. Thank you. Thank you so much.
You can continue to get to know Raj on his blog at rajdaniels.com. There's more information for you in the show notes and on the show blog at meettheneighbor.com. Thanks for joining the conversation. And join us next time on Meet the Neighbor when we'll be talking to Ben Brandt. We love to hear your stories. Meet the Neighbor is produced by Tamagam LLC. Our audio engineer is Diego Velasquez. I'm Laura Tamayo, and my friend is Raj Daniels. See you next week. Thank you.